0: Moving back to your hometown is not an easy thing to do, especially when you think of what made you want to leave it in the first place. But since I've returned, I've noticed that this seemingly slow-paced, remote little place is much darker, more disturbing than I first thought. And all the cautionary tales from my childhood come back to haunt me because the ghosts of the past tend to stick around. I'm starting to think that not all is what it seems in terrific. asylum next door. Okay, so you must be able to relate to this. So as kids, you know, when you're playing up and you're piddling about getting on your parents, aunties, uncles, grandmothers, babysitters, dog walkers, nerves, they must have said to you, you will send me to the madhouse or the insane asylum or the mental hospital or the nutcase ward or something. Well as I've come to realise, living in this town, it was a very real threat. The folks of Hereford lived in the shadow of a very foreboding Victorian asylum and it was named St Mary's Hospital and located in the village of Berg Hill, situated just north of Hereford City. And to generations before me, the asylum was very much a part of their lives. Shows like American Horror Story and films like Shutter Island have always painted asylums To be sort of terrifying places, grey and miserable, where patients are kept heavily sedated and hard-faced, sometimes sadistic-minded nurses walk around in stiff white uniforms. I wanted to know whether this really was the case. So, who better to ask than my old man? So, my dad has lived in Hereford his whole life. So, I invited him over to put some shelves up for me. And I asked him over the masonry drill uh, what it was like in Burghill. And uh, we sat down for a cuppa. Tea or coffee? Uh,
1: I'll have a cup of tea, please. I've got a bit of a blinded headache. Not a blinded headache, a stiff neck. I think it's all that painting looking up yesterday. Awesome. How's these files, no, I've had I had some. To, no, I had some like, only a couple of hours ago.
0: So, what was St Mary's like then?
1: Well, it, it had a stigma attached to it, didn't it? Any, I think all it, asylums did, they didn't. Yeah, it? anything with an asylum as such. Um, such a Victorian word. Um, it stems from that era, but it's not a it's not a British invention. I think it's Swiss. All oh, right. Um, because the uh, there was a Swiss. Um, psychiatrist that um, felt at the time that people with um, mental health issues uh, were, were best off in uh, organised areas they called asylums mm-hmm. and he toured uh, the world um, preaching this theory and most countries took it on uh, Britain included, and of course asylums were built all over the place. So I think it's a Swiss invention.
0: So, um, so you went there, I know, ages ago. Yeah. Some what was it like inside?
1: Um, it, uh, I suppose my only recollections would be uh, of, of long corridors uh, that, that echoed. Mm. But uh, it's it's going back a bit now. Is it like a hospital? Ago. Um, Without had a hospital smell yeah um but of course late in later years I was be- going to become immune to that uh, when I when I worked there but uh, not st mary's of course but uh, in the county and um but uh dark colours and uh a sort of large I don't know almost imposing building at times I seemed to go there were in the evenings
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it was always a bit Dark and. and but dark. Did, what was it?
0: What was its reputation around here? I mean, did uh, people talk
1: about y- it? Y- y- Burgh Hill was was um, a name synonymous with people that had uh, well uh, mental health issues. Mm. Is what you use. Is the term you use these because you don't offend people. Mm. But uh, if you use the old um, uh, sort of. Uh, phrases from years ago it was, it was nutcases and madhouse, madhouse and uh and, and uh and whatever else but people used to go and play sport up there
0: yeah they had i think they had
1: a, a, a i soon remember seeing a photograph in the paper of burghill cricket team yeah so they, they had a and the cricket ground might still be there
0: and i went to um i don't know when, if, when i looked in in the archives they had a whole thing about the women's institute going there for tea and they took cakes around for them and flowers and
1: it was really lovely, absolutely. Well that would that would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. I think that I think that people would have done things like that, but but I I mean I live too far away from there really to 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 uh, to know much about it. But uh, Okay. That would be that would be my earliest well only recollections really, which just the large building, echoing corridors. Scary. Um well, I was at an age where nothing particularly scared me. There was oh, there was a um, there was a reputation of of being being uh, haunted or something, but then all these large houses or institutions had reputations for. I mean, I remember working because I originally worked in the in the path lab when it was based in uh, in the old workhouse near the chapel, and I certainly remember working in there at something like three o'clock in the morning with a white lab coat on and looking up and seeing this ghost-like figure down the other end of the oh, corridor. I you And that. my heart stopped. Yeah, absolutely stopped until... Was it definitely a ghost? No, you? it was me. Oh, it was you. I was, I was oh. magnified in three different doors all the way down. Uh, I went through about three glass doors. So in the end, it was just a blur until I moved my hand, and the ghost moved their hand as did, well. Did but she... I'll tell you what, it was a fright oh,
0: So Dad gave me some useful info, but I needed a bit of context. So whilst I was down at the archives office researching for another episode, I met senior archivist Reese. Do you remember him from episode one? He, funnily enough, was going to give a talk on St Mary's later on this month. So I asked him rather shamelessly whether he could give my listeners, that's you guys, a scaled-down version, and he was more than happy to oblige. Thank you, Reese. The
2: history of looking after people with mental illness in Herefordshire, as in anywhere in the country, goes back an awful long way. And it ends in a time when institutions were established, which were in the old days known as lunatic asylums, which is not a language that we would now use. Um, And these places had a huge reputation for being dark places of repression, full of terrified, angst-ridden souls who... Uh, were raving and and insane and unable to look after themselves. And there is a bit of a a reputation that they have acquired over the the decades uh, where they were seen as cruel places. But in fact, I think as we will see, they were seen as more of a solution to a real need to look after people who had mental illness. And before they came along... Life was a great deal harder for what was described as the insane, because there was simply no provision at all for them separately. And we have records going back to the 17th century, where it's clear that somebody who was seen to have a mental illness would be seen as a real problem for the community at large, mm-hmm. and nobody knew how to deal with those people. It tended to be the case that if you had a mental illness you would either stay at home and be looked after by your parents or if they died you would end up probably being a vagrant a vagabond chased around from pillar to post begging or you'd simply end up in a jail Uh, and a mental illness was equated with criminality very much but the authorities were very much aware even as far back as the 1600s which is where where our first record dates from that provision had to be made. And we have a record of a woman who had a mental illness who, were the quarter sessions, who were effectively the county council of the day, were deciding that the parish where she lived had to provide a a special home for her. So even then, there was an appreciation that life was very hard for people with mental illness. Uh, And gradually, what are known as private asylums started to develop uh, in Hereford as in anywhere else really, where you would pay or your family would pay for you to be admitted and looked after in a pretty rudimentary way. Uh, Mainly the the emphasis was incarceration and protecting the rest of the community from you rather than necessarily helping you get better, although that was still something that that they worked on. Um, But there was a real temptation for families to shut away Troublesome family members, and it was rife with corruption, where people who are clearly not mentally uh, incapacitated would get locked up for the merest reason. And so they developed, and it's a whole there's a whole history is about changing laws and and gradually evolving a better way of looking after people. And so the quarter sessions, for instance, um, from the eighteenth century, had to license places of uh, hospitals, where, where, are all, uh, uh, as they were called, asylums, uh, and at least two JPs would have to certify that somebody was incapacitated enough to go into one of these places, so that it would try to avoid that 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 trend of, of just shutting away family members for for no good reason, and that half solved the problem, but was still inadequate, uh, and so. Like anywhere else, Hereford developed its own private asylum, and uh, that place developed a reputation for abuse. Um, so th- that was a kind of backdrop, and, and there were doctors who specialised so-called, they were called alienists because mm. you were alienated from your sanity. Um, so there was some sort of rudimentary treatment, but nothing very well developed. And so by the time the Victorian period came along, um, to the 1850s, there was gradually developing a sort of an understanding, again, fairly rudimentary and, and wrong-headed, as we would see now, or as doctors would see now, of various conditions. And the Victorians are great at classifying things, and they classified insanity. And they would try to treat them accordingly. Herefordshire eventually signed up with other authorities, decided to club together to, make, to, to establish the asylum near Abergavenny. So that was from the 1850s. They were meant to be light and airy, no more than two stories high, <clears throat> plenty of space, uh, and, and that was the sort of template that was followed. And so certainly the, the asylum in Abergavenny was that uh, an example of that. And if you had a mental illness in, in Herefordshire between 1852 and the 1870s, you would go to Abergavenny. But gradually, um, as the public authorities got used to the idea of, of paying and using rate payers' money to pay for these, they uh, realised actually it was probably going to be worth their while to to build their own in Herefordshire, because the numbers of patients grew dramatically, because the families who had previously been desperately struggling at home to look after people who they, they had difficulty to look after, found that there was a place for them to go, and so as soon as they opened the doors, they flooded in. And so they selected a, a part of the countryside that was quite good, quite had good communications to to, the Her- to Hereford itself, had good water supply, lots of land to have a farm. And that place they chose was Burke Hill. It closed in 1996. As is often the case, there was a great debate about what should happen to it. There was a move, I think, for the hospital to move there. And so there, there was a great campaign, I think, to get hospital moved from its current site to Berghill to be outside so it could expand and and, and improve that way. But for budgetary reasons, and, and this often happens with former Victorian institutions, it was sold to a developer and was converted into housing. In the intervening years, it had expanded... In fact, quite soon after it had opened, about 20 years later, they realised it was far too small, so they built new wings. And it's those wings that are still there now and have been converted into flats, and they've also added lots of housing as well. Uh, That is sort of sympathetic, if you like, but most of it is gone. There are are still lots of blocks there, but the spirit uh,
0: remains. So thank you to Reese. His knowledge on the subject of Burgh Hill is absolutely exhaustive, and um, I can't thank him enough for donating his time and expertise to this project. So I went into the office now to try and find out what they held on Burgh Hill. There were lots of pictures, and there were certain things that I could actually open and read and take a look at. So I took my microphone, set it up, and this is what I found. So what I found here in this rather ornate box is, <laughs> I wish I could describe, well, I can describe it. It's It's kind of like one of those old photo albums that your mother has. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's a book within a box, within another box, all tied up with ribbon. And it is gorgeous, actually. A real kind of throwback. Um, and it's It's 1965 and it's a Women's Institute scrapbook that they've obviously put together. And it says at the very beginning, this is a scrapbook compiled by the members of the Ulmley Women's Institute in 1965, as I've just said. It's written in the hope that it will be of interest to descendants in 2065. Goodness me! We've got a way to go yet. For a small village, we have lots of history. Much of it very dramatic, I'm sure. Um, and it's th- this is just st- stock full of pictures, uh, reports, weather reports. It's glorious, actually. No one scrapbooks anymore, or maybe they do, and I've missed a I've missed a trick. However, um, what they have got here is um, a page. It's only one page. And it's all about a social afternoon. It's written in hand, written by hand, uh, in beautiful calligraphy. And it says the social afternoon. It was with great pleasure that the Almley W.I. invited a party of patients from St Mary's Hospital, Berg Hill, to tea in September 1965. The tables were prettily decorated and laden with homemade delicacies. After. Tea games were played and old-time songs were much enjoyed. Bunches of flowers were given to patients to take back to their hospital wards, as well as cakes and other good things for patients who were unable to come to the party. We, as a WI, are very pleased to be able to give a treat like this to patients from St Mary's or the Home Lacey Hospital. Isn't that lovely? So they would have gone to... Um, Burghill and had a lovely afternoon tea especially for the patients reaching back to the community and it almost brings a tear to the eye because mental health is not to be feared and um, and clearly the ladies of the Almley Women's Institute and it's not a big it's not a big village by any means um, that they would have would have welcomed these patients into their community and given them gifts and that is just so sweet I feel a little bit choked up Wow, so I've just been given um, another document, um, as you can hear here. So this is, it's almost like a register. It's, um, I suppose, it's all, again, written, it's all handwritten out. It must have been a painstaking job. But on the 30th of June, 1889, it's kind of their own census, I suppose, of St Mary's. But the thing that kind of gets me the most is at the top, when they call them names of all the pauper lunatics in the asylum. Just goes to show how different things are now and what, how people were kind of categorised back in June 1889. And it's very sad. It's very sad. Um, but, you know, things have changed I don't really know what to say about it. It's just these are all people. And yet they're graded as as that. But there we go. Okay, so here we've got um we've got some reports actually from the asylum itself. Again, the word lunatic covers that quite a lot. And it's all it's almost like an official word. It's quite, quite scary, really. Would have been on the 23rd of September 1901. And actually, something that's quite interesting is uh, the dietary table. So these are, these are the things they would have eaten. So um, on Sundays for supper, cake is issued in lieu of bread and butter. Very nice. Tuesdays and Saturdays, pudding is given to either males or females in lieu of ordinary dinner. Occasionally, fish is issued in lieu of fresh meat. Condensed milk is often issued to make up any deficit in new milk. And jam is frequently issued on Wednesdays in lieu of butter. So they would have had... Males would have had eight ounces of bread for breakfast and two to a fifth of an ounce of butter and a pint of coffee. Got a pint of coffee. My gosh. And then um, for dinner, they were likely to have had uh, roasted meat, bacon in hash, Irish stew or shepherd's pie, meat pie, boiled meat, all on different days, of course. And um, soup, vegetable or pea soup. And then this is great. They would have had three quarters of a pint of cider, skimmed milk or lemonade. Cider. Goodness me. Sounds quite nice, really, doesn't it? When was this? 1901, how times have changed. And then there's a kind of... bit of a report. Of those admitted, nine men and three women had active suicidal tendencies. That's so sad. I'm thankful to report the asylum has been free from influenza and in a vir- virulent epidemic form for the first time during many years oh good i chiefly attribute this exemption to the mildness of the winter which never necessitated the overheating of the air over steam coils situated at some distance in the basement to maintain the necessary temperature in the living rooms We find the wards very bright and well-supplied with books, cages of birds and such objects as are calculated to interest the patients. You get a real sense of... It's kind of um, a very happening place. And I mean that sort of in in terms of... It sounds busy. It sounds like there's lots going on. It sounds like the patients are the main focus. I mean, this is obviously a report that has been given to uh, the chairman and committee... Um, to try and map out the landscape so it's going to be very officious it's going to be quite journalistic Um, and that's fine it seems to be well staffed the asylum gates still remain unlocked at night there have been four serious but non-fatal casualties in three of them patients sustained accidental fractures of bones and in the fourth case a male had two ribs broken in a scuffle with an attendant oh dear The matter was fully inquired into by the committee who, being satisfied that undue violence had been used, dismissed the attendant. But in the absence of corroborative evidence of violence, determined not to prosecute. Well, that's a bit of good news, I suppose. Ish. Broken ribs, but at least they got rid of the person involved. So this is a bit later, sort of 1914. So we're looking at 13 years later. What do they have for lunch? I'm always thinking about food. Straight to the back of the book. There's lots going on here. I mean, nowadays, we just email a load of figures, wouldn't we? But this is all in a nice, tidy little book. Oh, it's the same. Oh, it's the same. One pint of coffee. One pint of tea. Rabbits occasionally for change when in season. Oh, I love it rabbits, fish, apple and other fruit pies, pancakes, rice puddings, tobacco, tea and sugar. Wowzers. The dinner today consisted of corned beef with pickles or lettuce, bread and rice with milk as a beverage. I wonder if they're still getting tanked up on cider in 1940. The prevalent forms of mental disorder in the directed missions were mania, 17, Melancholia eight, dementia sorry, dementia nine, delusional insanity four, epileptic insanity is four, confusional states two, and imbecility four. The chief causative factor in the assigned cause of insanity was alcohol in seven, syphilis in six, insane hereditary in six, congenital mental deficiency in seven arteriosclerosis in six, tuberculosis in two, plummism in one, I can't even pronounce that, influenza in two, nervous disorder of a hereditary character three, pregnancy one, and one in each of the following. I don't know what that is. Valvular heart disease, gross brain lesion, rheumatic fever, and diabetes. That's so interesting. I would like to think that... I don't, get a, a, I don't get a bad vibe from this place, if I'm honest. There was teas being held there. Um, they were certainly having lovely food, drinking cider, and having demonstrations and things like that. I don't know. It sounds like it might have been circumstances accepted. Quite an okay place to be. So Reese pointed me in the direction of a book, and it's called Boots On Out. It was actually produced by Herefordshire Mind, and it's tales from ex-patients and ex-staff of St. Mary's Hill. And I thought, this is a brilliant resource. So I had a look through it. And it didn't really do justice for me to read out excerpts from it. So I've done it in a different way. I hope you enjoy it.
3: I have always regarded them as friends, the patients, always. And what's more, I could learn more from the patients to begin with than from anybody else. They were eager to give you information about the reign of the institution. They were interesting people. You had a cross section of the community, for example, a factory manager who was an alcoholic, to someone like a farmer. We could see the water tower from there. There was a water tower that was an enormous reservoir of water which would come down under its own gravity and supply the hospital. I remember one patient, a master builder, was sitting there in his easy chair and looking intently at that tower. I said, are you thinking of topping yourself, Bert? that as well but he said i'm really amazed at the quality of that brickwork they knew what they were doing when they did those bull's eyes and arches over there magnificent and he gave me a lecture on brick building it was a better thing than i've ever heard in a lecture room there was a cobbler shop there and a bakery as well and the patients that used to work there were good craftsmen Nurses' work was very basic indeed. That was a 24-hour job, especially when the doctor used to come and the visitors. You would see the people, prescribe and walk off and that's it. You had responsibility for the rest of the 24 hours. Those that were inclined to hurt themselves or others were put into a padded cell. Not for a very long time, I must say. And each time it was written down in the war book and ordered by the doctor to continue. There used to be a day room on Second Ward where the patients used to sit and there was a television that was piddled into by one of the patients. He was never electrocuted. He used to bet on his horses and apparently he had a particularly bad day, so he decided to piss on all this. The ward was an open room, no carpets, four rows of beds. Beds was very tight, just a foot and a half, two feet apart. If two patients decided to come out on the same side, then they banged their heads. <laughs> the most dangerous patient would be in the bed next to the office. We had patients with brain tumours, for example, and it was very easy to supervise at night. In the 60s, when they had a new medical superintendent, because the one before, he was very disciplinary and an old school, The medical superintendent was an absolute god. His decree was never questioned, never discussed. The use of drugs was unnecessarily heavy, depending on the floor prescribing it. There was too much reliance on some drugs. At one time, ECT was given to patients on their own wards, but eventually centralised ECT here. I have seen ECT be very beneficial for some of these patients, not for all of them, and not used so radically as some doctors liked when they were used on some people day in, day out, for 10 days in sex session. I've seen people improving quickly on ECT. That otherwise wouldn't improve at all. And they might have committed suicide. I don't know. I'm in two minds about ECT. We had some very good psychiatrists. But we had some really awful ones. Oh, God, we had some hopeless ones. <laughs> They're in charge, and you can just as well beat your head against the wall. You can't do much. But we had some brilliant ones, not for very long. They really brought changes. To begin with, I subscribed to the regime of locking up and so on. And then I thought it was absolutely unnecessary. Plain stupid. I noticed the capacity of the patients. If you give them more responsibility, then they thrive on it. Cricket was important for the patients and the staff, of course. They have quite a good team here. I remember patients who were at most uncommunicative came to life on cricket days. They used to like it a lot. When they used to have dances, because the male side was over there and the female side over there, females used to sit on the right and males used to sit on the left. Once the music struck, males used to come over and ask the females to dance, and that's how it went. It was really beautiful, and they used to enjoy this dancing.
4: I was a student at the art college and needed to supplement my student days. I saw an advert for domestics at St Mary's. I had no experience of working with people with mental health issues. My preconception of loony bins, as I called them, was Hitchcock films, mad people with axes. They were scary, but they couldn't do anything because they were mad. I think a lot of people had similar idea to mine about mental patients. I just thought it'd be an interesting experience. I was looking forward to working as a domestic as a novelty especially in a psychiatric hospital with women. I had an open mind. I talked a lot to the patients, nurses, and got to know everyone. But more than anything, I enjoyed chatting to the patients. I was comfortable with them. People had very heavy mental health problems, but it was their problem. There was no feeling they were going to hit you or even shout at you. And you could see that some of them were going through hell. Most of the patients were pretty drugged up. Some were zombified, actually, just walked around, woodenly, expressionless, devoid of human spark, and that was really sad. I made friends with some of the patients, but some didn't verbally communicate with anybody. I felt that the psychiatrists and consultants were clever people. The staff were very amusing. Their humour was really offbeat. Sometimes my interactions with the patients was quite bizarre. There were different atmospheres on different wards. It depended, not necessarily on the patients, but sometimes on the staff. Personally, I feel that working in one place, especially a psychiatric hospital, is detrimental to one's health. A chap had died and was lying on the bed where I was cleaning. It felt really odd. I kept looking at him. Generally speaking, the experience was good, positive, beneficial... The job was monotonous, but I was much more interested in the people, and that was what started the ball roller with me in mental health. I seemed to have some sort of affinity with people on the outside that don't necessarily fit into mainstream society. The closure of St Mary's had been talked about for 15 years. Half the wards are unoccupied. Most of the patients were elderly, psychogeriatrics, They thought they were going to be there until they died. One chap used to walk the corridors and he used to say to me, I don't have to go home, do I? You have to go home, but I live here. He'd been there most of his life. He was 60. My previous assumption about large psychiatric hospitals was that they were bad because people became dependent and lost their self-worth. But I actually found it was more like being in a family. The most surprising aspect of doing the project is that I expected people to recall their experiences in a negative way. I thought that they would see it as a prison, but the overriding impression had been positive.
0: Beautifully read stories there by Anne Cambridge and Asher Jones, and they're from Boots On Out which you can buy from Herefordshire Mind if you get in contact with them via their website. So I had a few stories, uh, I had the book, but I really wanted something a bit more personal. And there's not a lot on the internet. However, I did find a blog called The Virtual Victorian. So I had a look at that and there was a really fantastic article about um, somebody's grandmother. And that somebody was author of Victorian Gothic Mysteries, S.E. Fox, who hails from Hereford. So I got in contact with Essie. She actually owns the blog, and she's got quite a few books out now, um, which, again, you can go and buy online. And Essie was more than happy to give me an interview. So the line isn't the best, but this is Essie's story.
5: Well, I was born in Hereford itself, in in the hospital there, and um, brought up in Leinster and went to school in Leinster and was there until I was 18 when I went to university in Sheffield and then from Sheffield to London when I worked in publishing. And then when I had my daughter, I worked in graphic illustration for many, many years until I started writing when she left home. So and when I started writing, um, I always had this intense which you're probably feeling as well, coming back and looking into all of this, I just felt this intensely or the places that I remembered from my childhood because I think Herefordshire, uh, um, it, it, it's it's kind of almost magical. It has that pool, it's so beautiful, mm. but also there were all these stories from my childhood and uh, at that time one of the most the strongest pools was the Hampton Court and, and so I wrote my first novel, which was based around Hampton Court in a fictional way. And for my second novel, um, I based a lot of it around Kingsland, which is yes. a village very near to Leinster, where I spent a lot of my childhood because I had an uncle and aunt who lived there. So I knew the village very well and all the surrounding countryside, the church and all sorts of things about that. And um, when I was writing this novel, Elijah's Mermaid, although I already have that heritage aspect in Kingsland... I then moved the story to London, and I wanted to write about one of the characters ending up in an asylum, and there's a mm. slightly funny story to this, because the um, the fictional house I chose to place my London asylum in, I had no idea at the time had once been an asylum, although it was no longer an asylum, and I used to visit it a lot when my daughter was a little girl, and it's now Chiswick House with Chiswick House grounds, but part of it was once an asylum and anyway I was talking to my mother about this on the telephone one day and about what I was writing and saying that I had remembered going to Hill to St Mary's when I was about 11 or 12 with my stepfather mm. and we reminisced about what happened then and what that was all about and that's when my mother said well of course you do realize that your your great grandmother uh, ended her life there and was there for quite some years and I had no idea Mm. and this was quite an emotional story, which was a story that had been suppressed in my family, which was really odd, because I come from a family where I'm the only one who ever left home, Mm. moved away from Herefordshire. Everybody else has always stayed there. So, And and my grandfather was one of 12, and my grandmother was one of four on my mother's side. So, you know, a big family, um, with all of them marrying and having children of their own, and I sometimes think I'm related to half of them <laughs> So anyway, my mother started telling me um, this story about how she had hurt uh, this grandmother, who she'd never known, um, who'd, who died in Burke Hill. And it was very interesting because one of the things I remember from being very young when my mother's marriage broke up and things were obviously pretty stressful. I didn't realize it as a little girl. Was one of the things my mom used to say to my brother, my sister and I, when she was upset or we were being particularly naughty, uh-huh. she'd say, you kids, you're going to send me to Berg Hill. And we didn't sort of really understand what Berg Hill was. We just had mm. a mental image in our mind of what it must be from a terrible place. And, you know, this was, was obviously something very, very prominent in her mind, you know, when she was feeling herself under mental stress. Mm. But we didn't know why, and I didn't know why until I was very grown up, and she mentioned this grandmother. and But obviously that was something that the family knew, kept suppressed, and never talked about, although they were a family who talked about everything. I mean, yeah. Yeah. generally speaking, that's what my family do. They don't tend to read so much. But the oral history of my family, you know, you know everything because the aunts and the grandmothers if you sit around and chat, 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 and chat about themselves and about past family members, stories related to the family. So this yeah. was this was something out of the blue, and um, it's a very, very sad story actually. Um, Mary Hunt, my maternal great grandmother, yeah. um, had four children, was married, lived in Lempster. And after her last child was born, started to behave very peculiarly, um, of course nobody knew about, uh you know, postnatal yeah. stress and, and depression, after, but sure. it actually wasn't that anyway, but perhaps, you know, they might have thought it was that at the time if they'd known about it, but she was behaving erratically, I don't quite know in what ways, but she was taken to Burkhill and there she remained I don't know quite what age she was when she went in, but I don't think she could have been all that old, because I managed to track down the census of 1911 mm. and at that point she's listed on the records as being in Burkhill right. and the aged 30 and um, it doesn't say more because quite interesting actually the page I've got with her reference has got 30 other names on it but that's only the first page of the the residence
0: right um, so that would have been the, the rest of the, everyone else who inhabited the hospital
5: yes yes and, and there would have been many other pages and I, I think as it, I don't quite know but I know that um from the research I did that the hospital was built to accommodate 500 residents. I don't know mm. how many were there when she was there. Um, but there, but it's interesting looking at that record because most of the people on the page I've got from that census record are 69, 76, 80, 68, 85, 90, 70, mm. quite elderly. So mm. she, she would have been um, quite unusual in being so young. Um, and I, all it says is that she was married and she held from Lempster and then where it says infirmity and there is a special column for infirmity, um, that's all been blanked out (coughs) by whoever listed the census records. So, um, I have no idea what they had listed as being her specific mental infirmity, but, um, we did find out. Many, many years, well, my mother found out many, many years later that when um, my grandmother died, and there's a very sad story around that as well, it's, um, her husband was sent a letter to say that she died. Mm-hmm. He didn't receive the letter for quite some, some days. He, he, he eventually went, he, according to family legend, and I'm not quite sure how true all this is, but according to family legend, he hired a horse and trap to go and fetch her, fetch the body, but when he got there, she'd already been buried in an unmarked way. Oh. It's terribly sad. And also, um, uh, uh, an autopsy had been done when she died. I think this is mm. quite common when the residents died. And, and it was discovered that she'd had a brain tumour. Oh, so,
0: right. It's
5: terribly sad to think Very that, sad. you know, today that would have been diagnosed mm. and perhaps she could have been cured or at least she would have had different treatment, obviously. She wouldn't have been put into... The asylum. So it's very sad. And I think she must have suffered. I think she must have been in pain because my mother says that, although very few people in the family actually spoke about it, because I think they felt a terrible shame about it. Cause, you know, in those days, there would have been that stigma of having a family member
2: mm-hmm. in the
5: asylum. Um, my mother did say that the only time her mother really mentioned it, my, this is my grandmother, was to say that she did remember going to see her as a little girl. Mm. Um, but they were frightened because she would have a straitjacket on. And so they must have been afraid that she perhaps might have harmed the children or harmed herself. I don't know. Mm. But that was and then I think basically, I don't think she remembered ever going to see her again. I think perhaps, you know, it was almost just forgotten. I'm not mm. sure.
0: Such a sad story. Essie then went on to tell me about the time she visited Hill much later on with her stepfather.
5: When I was 11 or 12, um, my mother remarried again. I used to drive, go off with my, my stepfather quite a lot, um, when he was driving around the countryside. And, um, he took me one day with him to go and visit his sister who was in Berg Hill. And his sister slow had schizophrenia, so sometimes, um, you know, when her condition became a bit out of control, she would go into Berg Hill. So I went along with him, and all I remember really is this, I remember this very grand drive leading up to this very grand house and many, many acres of grounds and it was, it it was incredible. It was like a, you know, huge gothic rambling sprawling country house. And I I just remember going through this enormously grand front door and walking along these corridors which had sort of linonium, very hospitalized, you know, inside because swathes of linonium. And I can remember being quite frightened because hearing people shouting and Calling things out and then going in to meet my 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 father's sister my stepfather 's yeah. sister, and it was actually quite comical, really because. She clearly wasn't quite herself, and I was 11 or 12, and he was then in his 50s, and she was convinced that I was his wife. So it was quite hard I wasn't his wife, Um, and of course, being 11 or 12, I was mortified at this. I I think it's funny now, but at the time, I was was absolutely mortified. I did a lot of research, and, and I've got to say that it was very hard to do any research into... Berg Hill itself. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the general research I, I did afterwards. But with Berg Hill itself, when I, I when my mother told me this story about my great grandmother, um, I was very upset. Um, I mean, it does have a slightly happy ending, in not happy, but, but a sweet ending in a way. In that um, years later, and, and just after my mother spoke to me, she'd bumped into another family member in Leinster who said that they'd been along to a remembrance service um, which was to do with Burghill, which by then had closed down. Mm. But there was this very large grave um, which contained very, very many People who'd been buried, and and they had the they knew the names of most of the people, um, so they'd contacted as many family members as they possibly could and invited them to a remembrance service, which mm. they held, which I think was in 2002, around right about right. the early 2000, and um, they basically planted a daffodil for every name that they had mm. that was buried in this unmarked. Unmarked grave area of the ground, and there were 2,000 daffodils planted. The asylum was built in, I think, 1871. Mm-hmm. So, and it remained open until the early 90s. So, mm. you know, many, many people passed through its doors and lived and died there. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, um, those who weren't claimed for burial or whose families had just abandoned them there, that's what happened. They were buried in an unmarked grave. It's really quite tragic. Mm-hmm.
0: Coming up in part two, it was time that I actually visited the old site of St. Mary's Asylum. Oh, here it is. Oh. Okay. You would have thought that people would have thought twice about living here if they knew the background. I mean they're horrible places. Victorian asylums are really, really horrid.
3: People who feel actually they'd prefer to ring into work and say they've got a cold or some physical symptoms than actually say my mental health isn't good today.
2: And people they pass in the street will shrink back or laugh and he said you know this is desperate and fair because they're much more likely to be threatened by the outside world than the other way around
0: i just got very excited and i felt like i had to call you oh that's all right carry on carry
5: on oh my god can i can i catch up with you later because i think
3: this is going to be upsetting
0: thanks for listening see you next time